This is Andrew Wood. It is another week. I'm the Executive Director of Hope Resource Center. Thank you so much for tuning in, whether that be live at Joy620 or our podcast over at investinghope.com, Google Play, iTunes, Podbeam, wherever podcasts are found. You can find this show. Boy, oh boy, oh boy, do we have a lot to talk about today. Last week was the big Supreme Court case out of Mississippi. Dobbs, the, the, man, just, it did, it did not disappoint, that's for sure. Uh, so now what we do is we spend the next few months pontificating and trying to figure out which way the court is going to decide. I have a few articles that we're going to focus on today that I think will, will be important and I'll, uh, analyze and, and walk through, uh, some of those, uh, opinions as well. And so we'll start with a piece over at Newsweek. Uh, it's an opinion piece by Josh Blackman, who is a professor, uh, at South Texas College of Law of Houston. And he argues the Roberts Court is poised to unravel Roe v. Wade's uh, paradox. And, and let's, let's see what, what they have to say. On Wednesday, of course, the Supreme Court considered the validity of Mississippi's 15-week abortion ban. Yet, there was surprisingly little discussion about whether the 14th Amendment of the Constitution, as it was originally understood, permits the states to prohibit pre-viability abortions. Rather, the bulk of the two-hour proceeding focused on whether the court should stand by Roe v. Wade, the landmark 1973 precedent that conjured a constitutional right to abortion. Roe's defenders argue that overruling the precedent would be unpopular, so the court should maintain this obviously erroneous decision to avoid weakening the court's public standing. But this position is paradoxical. The court's legitimacy depends on independent jurists who faithfully decide cases based upon written law. By contrast, judges who base their decisions on popular opinion subvert the court's legitimacy. Thankfully, the Roberts Court now seems poised to unravel Roe v. Wade's uh, presidential paradox. After oral arguments, the majority of the justices seem to agree that Roe should be overruled because it is wrong, regardless of how supporters of that decision will respond. The court, in other words, appears set to decide the case based on the law, and on the political and the political chips will fall where they may. Again, this goes back to what we talked about a few weeks ago. The reason why the Supreme Court is a lifetime appointment, the reason why Supreme Courts are not voted on, is so that they are not swayed one way or the other by the political opinion of the day. We do not want jurists sitting on the Supreme Court to to be ruled by mob rule. We don't want them looking at Twitter and going, oh, which noise is the wind blowing today? I don't want them thinking about public opinion. And, and Soto Maura, which, which is a concern of mine, uh, which she's not going to vote in favor with us anyway, but she mentioned during the court case last week something about public opinion. Well, I hate to break it to you, but you don't need to be concerned about public opinion. You need to be concerned about the law. What is constitutional and what is not constitutional? What works and what doesn't work? How was the legislation written? This isn't even legislation in terms of Roe v. Wade was, was just concocted out of thin air. So now we have a piece of legislation out of Mississippi that may bring all of that to an end as far as what happened in 1973 with Roe v. Wade and what happened in 1992 with Casey v. Planned Parenthood. So we'll see what happens, but public opinion should not play a role. In 1973, the Supreme Court held in Roe that the Constitution guarantees a right to abortion during the first and second trimesters of pregnancy. Two decades later, in Planned Parenthood v. Casey, the court purported to reaffirm Roe, but in reality rewrote the precedent. According to Casey, states could prohibit abortions after the point of fetal viability. 
a line that changes based on neonatal medicine, but could not impose an undue burden on abortions prior to viability. The controlling opinion was written jointly by Justices Sandra Day O'Connor and Anthony Kennedy and David Souter. Much of the opinion in Casey focused on a legal doctrine known as stare decisis, which is Latin for stand by the things predecided. Even though those three agreed that Roe was not correctly decided, they worried that overruling Roe in the face of popular opposition would weaken the Supreme Court's institutional standing. They said this, To overrule under fire in the absence of the most compelling reason to re-examine a watershed decision, they explain, would subvert the court's legitimacy beyond any serious question. Chief Justice William Rehnquist accurately characterized this paradox. From the bench, he explained that the court's opinion in Casey can be viewed as a surrender to those who have brought political pressure in favor of Roe Rehnquist's Intoned. Once the court starts looking to the currents of the public opinion regarding a particular judgment, it enters a truly bottomless pit from which there is simply no extracting itself. Justices O'Connor, Kennedy, and Souter plunge the court into a freefall from which it is still perpetually plummeting. That is, that is, of course, right. The more we politicize the courts, the more the courts worry about public opinion, the worse it is for good law, the worse it is for the Constitution. In dissent, Justice Antonin Scalia was appalled. The court's decision was strongly influenced by the substantial and continuing public opposition Roe has generated. Scalia found frightening the notion that the court would alter its decision in order to show that we can stand firm against public disapproval. Scalia charged the Casey majority with almost uh, with arrogance for standing by a decision precisely because the court is under fire. To the contrary, standing firm would mean ignoring the political consequences of its rulings. On Wednesday, two current members of the court channeled the logic of justices they clerked for. Chief Justice John Roberts, who clerked for Rehnquist, recognized Roe's presidential paradox. He said that Casey seems to require the court to consider whether the decision will be popular. But this reasoning, Roberts observed, was paradoxical. How could it be that the court should be firmer and have more respect for decisions because they are more unpopular? Sustained opposition to a decision, after all, provides some support that the court was wrong to reach that very decision in the first place. But in any event, the court should not be in the business of assessing the political consequences of any potential ruling. And that is true. Justice Amy Coney Barrett, who clerked for Scalia, raised the issue directly during the oral arguments. She recognized that Casey adopted a different conception of stare decisis. That case very explicitly took into account public reaction when deciding whether to overrule Roe. For three decades, Casey has rested on this logical fallacy. First, Judicial independence is central to the court's legitimacy. Second, the court should avoid decisions that threaten the court's legitimacy. Third, therefore, the court should uphold an erroneous precedent because that decision would be rendered under fire. How can judicial independence be maintained if the justices are basing their decisions on the latest Gallup poll? Judges simply are not equipped to make these types of assessments of popular opinion. More likely than not, the justices will look inside at how important they view the precedent, rather than looking outward. This introspection is inconsistent with the notion of a written rule of law itself. The Roberts Court is now poised to correct one of the largest uh, jurisprudential blunders in Supreme Court history. A decision to repudiate Casey's flawed conception of stare decisis would restore, not weaken, the court's legitimacy. Now, the court can end its freefall into what Rehnquist called the bottomless pit. The justices will make their decisions. Let the political chips fall where they may. And that is true. 
You know, I listened to the arguments the other day, and the thing that kept uh, that, that bothered me was the that bothered me more than anything was the the, the frequent call to Starry Decisis by the uh, the judge that was or, or by the, the the lawyer that was fighting against the Mississippi law. And so here here's the reality, uh, and I, I put some thoughts on this online. Uh, but I, I'll say them here. Arguing stare decisis or super precedent in SCOTUS hearings as a reason why the court should or should not act in a very da- is a very dangerous place to be. Stare decisis is a very important, it is very important, but we must leave room for the courts to act when the precedent that was set by previous courts was egregious in nature, wrong in practice, and or con- unconstitutional. This was true way back in the day. And is why the court overturned egregious decisions in Plessy versus Ferguson, Dred Scott versus Sanford, and Korematsu versus United States. There are certainly times where the precedent set was wrong and needs to be addressed. That is the, the thing we need to remember. Look, if you just argue super precedent on everything, look, the reality is we do need stare decisis. We need precedent. Why do we need precedent? Because if we didn't have precedent, then the courts would be bogged down all the time with the same cases over and over and over and over and over. We don't want that to happen. So we do want a judge to say, look, precedent was set in this particular case, and this is the exact same case, so we're going to rule the exact same way. I have no problem with that. That's efficient. What I do have a problem with is arguing precedent or stare decisis on on rulings that were egregious or unconstitutional. So you can go back to two rulings where we looked at slavery. Once a slave, always a slave. Well, guess what? The court looked at that and said, this isn't super precedent. This is bad law. This is unconstitutional, and we're going to overturn that. You can look where we said segregation was okay. And what the court say? No, it's not okay. We're going to overturn that ruling. The Korematsu versus United States. During wartime, we actually put Americans who had a certain heritage, we put them in internment camps. Well, guess what? The court said, not too long ago actually, hey, we can't do that. That's bad law. That's unconstitutional. We cannot just put throw Americans into camps because they're from this place or that place. Look, there, there are going to be moments where we look at the precedent that was set and the court's job is to say, that is bad law. So in, in 1973, Roe v. Wade came out. There's a number of folks, scholars that are pro-choice and pro-life that say that was bad case law. That was a bad decision. Then in 1992, you had Casey versus Planned Parenthood and you have the court actually saying, well, with the, with the climate that we're currently in, in public opinion, we don't need to make this decision. We don't need to overturn Roe because it would create a volatile situation. So they were concerned about public opinion. That's what Rehnquist was saying was, hey, if you go down that path, there, it's going to be very hard to come back from. It's a bottomless pit. When you start worrying about public opinion, when you start worrying about Gallup polls, when you stop, start worrying about what Twitter is saying, and start worrying about mob rule, that's not the, the job of the court. That's why you are, or you are appointed for life. 
That's why you're not elected. If you were elected, then yeah. That's why, that's why President Obama, before he was elected, said marriage is between one man and one woman. That's why Hillary Clinton, before she was elected to anything, said marriage was between one man and one woman. Well, guess what? When they got into office and they saw the polls change, what did they do? They changed. Oh, no, I've always said that, that marriage can be between whoever. Why did they change? They changed because political opinion changed. And they're elected officials. So they can ebb and flow. They move in and out. That, that's their, their goal is to get elected. We don't want our courts doing that. We shouldn't be politicizing the courts anymore. And so I don't know what the court is going to decide. I think we do have the votes. I was pleased with the arguments. I think Roberts may even be part of the majority opinion. I, I don't know that. Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett gave some promise in the questions that they were asking and how they were interacting with the attorneys. I thought the Mississippi Attorney General did a great job of arguing his case. I thought the, the attorney fighting against the, the law did a terrible job. A terrible job. Again, because the argument was solely on stare decisis, super precedent. And I love that Kavanaugh threw a bunch of cases at her and said, so would you say these cases shouldn't have been overruled and overturned because of stare decisis? And, and their attorney was saying, well, you know, you have to have real evidence that this needed to be changed or that needed to be changed. And it made them look like a fool. And so we'll see what happens. I think they already know what direction they're going. And, and, you know, will they, will that leak? I don't know. The Supreme Court in the past historically has been uh, a tight ship and they don't let these decisions leak. But, uh, but they met on, they met last Friday in conference. And so I think the votes have been made. Now that could change between now and, and the summer. But, uh, but be praying for them. Be praying for our judges and, uh, what they're going through, be praying, no matter what the decision is, uh, they need prayer. And uh, we pray that it goes in the direction of life. We'll talk more when we come back. So this song reminds me of Home Alone. Anybody else remind you? You know, the Home Alone home, the house, Airbnb owns that house. It's in Illinois. Uh, and now you can stay there. One night, and they even, I believe, have a lot of the, the gadgets and the things so you can actually, like, relive the movie. Now, they don't, they're not going to let you damage the house. You know, as a, as a kid watching Home Alone, I loved it because I thought, man, how awesome is this? As an adult, I watch it and I think, man, somebody's got to clean up all those feathers. Somebody's got to clean up all those Legos and Hot Wheels and all the damage done to the house. As a, as a grown man that owns a home, I'm like, oh, my goodness, the chandelier fell from the roof, uh, like, so many things happen. That's why Home Alone 2, Lost in New York, he's doing it all in a house that's being renovated anyway. And so it's, you know, that damage is not as big of a deal. But in the first one, it's like, wow, that's a gorgeous home that they're, you know, trashing. But uh, anyway, you can do that. Look on Airbnb and maybe maybe you take the family up there for one night. It'll probably be a lot of fun. We continue to look at what's going on in Washington at the Supreme Court uh, after the case that happened last week. Uh, there in uh, concerning the Mississippi law. Uh, right now, I want to look at a piece over at the Federalist uh, about pro, a pro-life coalition and how we are to prepare 
for the SCOTUS, the Supreme Court, to overturn Roe. So as the Supreme Court prepares to hear, now they already heard the, the arguments, um, Family Policy Alliance is launching a new website to help state-level activists pro- protect life and aid families in a post-Roe America. On Wednesday, uh, FPA will introduce a campaign called After Roe, which will feature a website designed to help educate Americans on their state's abortion laws and connect them with opportunities to help defend the right to life in preparation for a reversal of Roe, whether that happens in Dobbs or at some other point in the future. The Supreme Court's decision in Dobbs, a case evaluating the constitutionality of Mississippi's ban on nearly all abortions after 15 weeks, gives the court court's conservative majority an opportunity to overturn unconstitutional pro-abortion precedents in Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey. Even now, before a Supreme Court decision in Dobbs, the pro-life movement has won state-level victories around the country, leading NARAL pro-choice America to declare 2021 the worst year for abortion rights since Roe was decided. A prominent example is the Texas law that went into effect in September, which empowered citizens to sue abortion providers for killing babies with Detectable heartbeats, effectively banning abortion after unborn babies are six weeks. No matter what happens with Dobbs, we are confident of two things. Roe's time is short, and pro-lifers across the country need to prepare for that coming reality, uh, the director for Family Policy Alliance said. Uh, But a reversal of Roe by the Supreme Court would not automatically outlaw abortion across the country either. If Dobbs is the case to overturn or dramatically undo Roe, the glass ceiling that Roe imposes on pro-life protections will finally be lifted, meaning that states that are ready to be strongly pro-life or which already have a trigger law, like Tennessee, will be able to fully protect life right away. If it's not Dobbs but another case that will finally undo Roe, we will continue using this time to ensure that state laws are pro-life and citizens are ready for action in their states. We can truly watch a pro-life transformation occur after Roe. If the Supreme Court hands authority on abortion to state lawmakers, many Americans will find themselves wondering, what are the abortion laws in my state? A time the country too often turns, at a time the country too often turns to the federal government to solve its problems, lawmakers and state capitals will suddenly hold the political tools to direct one of the biggest moral and political issues in the nation. With that proximity comes increased access to change, an opportunity that pro-life advocates can, can't afford to pass up. Rather than rest on the laurels of a judicial victory, the pro-life movement should be prepared to step up the moment the Supreme Court lets them. That's the goal of the, quote, After Roe website. It will direct readers towards ways to partner with pro-life groups like Alliance Defending Freedom, March for Life, Susan B. Anthony, Students for Life of America, and more. Don't forget pregnancy centers. It will also provide an interactive map for users to quickly research what the abortion laws are in their states. While the pro-abortion lobby loves to smear pro-life advocates as only concerned about banning abortion and not about caring for mothers, their babies, and their families, the website also makes a point to highlight opportunities to help moms who consider abortion. We have a vision for 50 states where not only babies are saved from abortion, but their moms and dads get the real care they need and pro-life options like adoption are advanced and improved. When you visit AfterRoe.com, you'll be able to connect with pro-life organizations that are already doing the hard work on the ground to protect and care for moms and babies. The focus by pro-life groups like Family Policy Alliance on state activism also leans into the Americans' founders' vision for governance via federalism. A Supreme Court decision overturning Roe would allow states to protect the lives and freedoms of their unborn citizens without being restricted by federal judicial mandates, but a working federal system requires popular involvement at the state level. 
Roe created a one-way road toward abortion. If your state wanted to loosen or remove abortion restrictions, it was welcome to do so. But if your state wanted to tighten those restrictions and protect life, the options were limited. A decision that returns abortion to the states would free states from the artificial limitations of Roe and allow that state citizens, not nine justices, to decide how they would protect life. Now, I will mention, we also know that if Roe is overturned, it's just the beginning. Now, what do I mean by that? What I mean is, if it's overturned and goes back to the states, our work's not done. Yeah, we would have it outlawed in, in Tennessee and, and a lot of other red states. But there's a lot of blue states where it would not be. It would, it would actually be promoted and in, in all the way up through nine months. So if you're a pregnant mom in Tennessee, the baby in your womb has more rights than a baby of a pregnant mom in New York. That's not good. I mean, it's great for Tennessee. It's great for babies in Tennessee, not great for babies in New York, not great for babies in Illinois, not great for babies in California, in Washington, in Oregon. And so these are the things we're going to have to think about. And that's why I'm glad this, uh, th- these folks are putting out a website to, to help. For the longest time, the best website when it comes to abortion data is Gutmacher. Well, they're a pro-abortion organization. And you have pro-lifers citing them because they have the best data. They have the best numbers. And so I'm glad that a website's coming out that's trying to remedy that so that we can look at our own data and our own numbers and that pro-lifers can be leading the charge, leading the way in this. But, but don't think that just because Roe is overturned that it's over. Now, there's also a lot of folks that believe that once Roe is overturned, abortion is outlawed across the country. That's not true. Don't believe that either. I mean, frankly, there, there's a number of red states that if, if Roe is overturned, abortion is still going to be okay until they pass a, a law. Now, in Tennessee, we have the trigger law. There's other states that have the trigger law, meaning if Roe is overturned, that law goes into effect. But there are some conservative pro-life states that don't have anything like that. What I anticipate happening, and, and it may even happen as soon as January, when session starts back up for a lot of states, state uh, legislatures start back, back up, is passing similar laws to that of Texas or Mississippi. Even though we don't know the decision from the court yet, and we won't know it in January, there may be some states that are going to be proactive. So states across the union may go, well, it looks like the 15-week ban there in Mississippi is... Uh, is a good law. So let's let's pass a bill that is similar or, or identical to that of Mississippi, and that way, if the court rules in favor of Mississippi, then our law is going to be fine because they won't be challenged in court because it's already been ruled on by the Supreme Court. There may be some folks that say, you know, the Supreme Court hasn't acted on the, the legislation out of Texas. So let's pass laws that look like the, the legislation out of Texas. I mean, you better believe that there's state legislators uh, across the country <clears throat> that are watching this and saying, okay, they, they've kind of paved the way, Texas, Mississippi. We're going to go that direction too. I don't know if that's the case. I don't know what will happen, but we'll see. I, I anticipate more laws looking like that. But, but we're going to have to come to grips as a nation that if Roe is overturned, like yes, 
I think it should go back to the states. But but as pro-lifers, that that can't be the end point. We can't be okay that a baby in Tennessee would be protected in the womb, but a baby in New York would not be protected in the womb. Right? I mean, we, we can't just say, yeah, that's fine. And so at some point, we're going to have to call for uh, something there. That, that puts us at a weird spot where, where people in the state of Tennessee have more rights than people in the state of New York. We'll talk more about it when we come back. Well, there's, if you don't have Alabama Christmas on your playlist, I, I don't know what you're doing at Christmas time. Uh, so good. So good. That, one of my favorites from them is Thistle Hair, the Christmas Bear, which makes no sense. Uh, but it is uh, so good. And so um, would highly recommend it. I want to continue looking at some of the – I told you that after the court case, after the hearings – There'd be a lot of folks pontificating on what what's going to happen and what it looks like and all those things, and so I, I, that's what we're looking at. There's a lot of people doing that. There's a piece over at Slate by Mark Joseph Stern, and look, Slate is not your typical, uh, you know, it's not your typical conservative piece, but it's interesting to hear their view of what happened last Wednesday. They say this: Give this to the Supreme Court. It did not leave us in suspense. During oral arguments on Wednesday, uh, five Republican-appointed justices made it abundantly clear that they are prepared to abolish the constitutional right to abortion established nearly 50 years ago in Roe v. Wade. Perhaps the most surprising aspect of the morning was how little Justice Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett concealed their desire to overrule Roe. While Chief Justice John Roberts fruitlessly sought out a compromise, Kavanaugh and Barrett showed their cards. Both justices believe the court has an obligation to let states or Congress decide the abortion question. Neither showed any appetite for incremental steps or half measures. They are eager to greenlight complete bans on all forms of abortion at every stage of pregnancy. You see how they're wording this. They definitely are not uh, pro-life. And they are ready to do it now. Dobbs is a challenge to Mississippi's 15-week abortion ban and is thus presented the 6-3 conservative majority was a po- with a possible middle ground. In Roe, and then again in 1992's Planned Parenthood v. Casey, the court established a bright-line rule. States may not outlaw abortion before fetal viability, which occurs around 24 weeks. Now, again, that was in 1992. I just talked about a baby that was born just weeks ago that was, that was born at, at 21 weeks and is okay. So viability changes as time goes on. <clears throat> The majority could have used Dobbs to move that line back to 15 weeks or perhaps earlier while preserving a right to abortion at early stages of pregnancy. Roberts expressed interest in this possibility early in Wednesday arguments, then brought it up again and again. He suggested that the viability rule was arbitrary, the result of personal negotiation between past justices rather than a defensible rule of law. And he floated the prospect of replacing that rule with a more flexible standard that would uphold Mississippi's ban without eradicating all constitutional protections for abortion. But Roberts had no takers. This fact became clear when Kavanaugh asked Mississippi Solicitor General Scott Stewart an absurd question. Kavanaugh said this, To be clear, you are not arguing that the court somehow has the authority to itself prohibit abortion. 
Of course, no party asks SCOTUS to ban abortion, and few seriously claim that the Constitution disallows abortion. Asking such a ridiculous question allowed Kavanaugh to frame overruling Roe as the true compromise in a comment aimed at the public rather than anyone in the courtroom. Again, this, this author of this piece is trying to read between the lines and, and assuming what Kavanaugh was meaning there. He doesn't know that for certain. He's making assumptions. He's making assumptions from a, a posture and from a viewpoint of one that, is, that believes abortion is constitutional. So the author of this piece believes that abortion is a constitutional right. So he's reading and listening to what Kavanaugh and Barrett and others are saying, and he's going, they're going to take this away. They're going to take this away. So you've got to understand how they see and view the world to understand why they say what they say. But, but what this does do is give us a glimpse into what the other side believes and thinks when they hear the oral arguments. So they certainly didn't think it was a home run for the pro-abortion folks. The Constitution's neither pro-life or pro-choice on the question of abortion. This is what Kavanaugh said. But, but leaves the issue for the people of the states, or perhaps Congress, to resolve in the democratic process. He added that if Roe goes, some states would continue to freely allow abortion. At points, Kavanaugh did not even pretend to frame these thoughts as a question rather than a comment. Kavanaugh continued this strategy, pretended to ask a question, then announced his own views. Throughout the morning, he complained to Julie Rickleman, attorney for abortion providers, that the court has been forced to pick sides on the most contentious social debate in American life. Worse, it has been forced to do so in a situation where, according to the other side, the Constitution is neutral. And so he concluded that the court should not pick sides, but rather remain neutral on the question of abortion, neither pro-choice nor pro-life. In case Kavanaugh's position wasn't clear enough, he later suggested that the court should not hesitate to overrule Roe, despite its status as settled precedent for nearly half a century. Why? Some of the most important and consequential cases in the Supreme Court's history overruled precedent, including Brown versus Board of Education. That's true. So the, the author of this piece is acting as if that's a bad thing. Like, oh, we can never overrule precedent. No, no what, they, what they're actually arguing is, we can never overrule precedent if precedent meets our narrative and agenda. You see, abortion is the golden calf. It's our narrative and agenda. So what pro-abortion folks are going to say is the court cannot overrule super precedent because abortion is a constitutional right. And what pro-lifers are saying is, no, super precedent is not law. And if a precedent that was set is unconstitutional or egregious in nature, then the court should overrule it. And that's what we have here. Kavanaugh said this, if we think that the prior precedents are seriously wrong, why then doesn't the history of the court's practice tell us that the right answer is actually a return to the position of neutrality? Put differently, reversing Roe would not harm the court or the country. It would be celebrated as a victory for the democratic process, as he told Solicitor General Elizabeth Prologer. There will be different answers in Mississippi and New York, different answers in Alabama and California, because there are two different interests at stake, fetal life and reproductive freedom. And the people in those states might value those interests somewhat differently. Why is that not the right answer? Barrett was equally transparent about her hostility toward Roe. She repeatedly pointed to safe haven laws in all 50 states that allow women to relinquish parental rights over unwanted children shortly after birth. It seems to me, seen in that light, both Roe and Casey emphasized the burdens of parenting, she said. Rickleman's arguments focus on the way that forced motherhood, listen to that, would hinder women's access to the workplace and to equal opportunities. That's nonsense. Barrett noted, so why don't the safe haven laws take care of that problem, she asked. Rickleman replied by pointing out that pregnancy 
is its own burden and relatively dangerous and a relatively dangerous one. It's 70 times, 75 times more dangerous to give birth in Mississippi, she noted, than it is to have a pre-viability abortion. But Barrett brushed her off. Actually, as I read Roe and Casey, they don't talk very much about adoption. It's a passing reference that means out of the obligations of parenthood. Here, the justice took direct aim at Casey, the 1992 decision that reaffirmed Roe while injecting an equally principle, equality principle into the right to abortion by explaining that the burdens of parenthood diminished women's personal and professional opportunities. Listen, she's making... So the, the, the attorney for the abortion folks is making the argument that forced, quote-unquote, forced motherhood, forced pregnancy, limits people to find success in the workplace and to achieve their dreams. And that adoption doesn't remedy that. She's saying that to Amy Coney Barrett. Amy Coney Barrett, law school graduate, sitting on the Supreme Court of the United States, a mother of seven, has adopted children of her own, and she's sitting on the highest court in the land. Seven children! And this attorney is saying, well, you know, if people, women have babies, they can't achieve the success they want. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? But I digress. So the, the article goes further. We, with these questions from Kavanaugh and Barrett, we can already see the eventual opinion, opinion likely to come down in June shaping up. Justices Clarence Thomas, Sam Alito, Neil Gorsuch are surefire votes against Roe. The court will hold that advancements in the law of adoption and relinquish uh, protect women's equal protection or participation in the nation's social and economic life after childbirth. It will assert that these developments erode the value of Roe and Casey's precedents. It will then declare that those decisions were egregiously wrong because the Constitution is neutral on abortion. And it will frame this outcome as a triumph of democracy and a fair compromise because the court did not mandate abortion bans but simply permitted them. Within six months of the decision, experts predict that roughly half the states will impose complete or near total bans of abortion. And if Republicans win a trifecta in 2024, they may pass a nationwide ban. Pro-choice advocates desperate for a glimmer of hope can cling to Robert's quest for a middle ground. A decision protecting abortion until 15 or 12 weeks instead of 24. There is a very slim chance that the Chief Justice might pick off Kavanaugh or Barrett for a narrow opinion that safeguards early abortions at least until the next case comes around. But it's hard to see how Roberts could pull off such a feat. Both justices appear impatient to resolve the dispute now. Neither seem remotely concerned about public backlash or political consequences. They sound more than ready to pull the trigger. Exactly! Look, the, the author says neither, neither seem con concerned about public opinion or political backlash. Yeah, because they're Supreme Court justices. They shouldn't be concer concerned about political backlash or, or public opinion. But the fact that the pro-aborts are writing pieces like this, they think it's, it's a done deal. My concern, I, I've, been, I've been talking for weeks and months, that it's going to come down to Kavanaugh and, and Barrett and what direction they're going to go. And, and here you have someone that, it, that believes abortion is a constitutional right that wrote this piece saying, Kavanaugh and Barrett didn't hide anything. They're, they're so against abortion they can't wait to get rid of it. And, and then you have this person writing and saying the best case scenario, the best case scenario for them is a 12 to 15 week ban on abortion. That's best case scenario for pro-abortion folks. If that is true, and that is what they believe, and is that what is that is what happens, is worst case for them, Roe is overturned. Best case, we ban abortion 12 to 15 weeks, then hallelujah. 
I hope that dude's right. I hope his analysis is right. Now, again, you got to understand, he's doing that from a view he believes abortion is a constitutional right. He also believes the court, at least in this case, he wouldn't believe it in other cases, he believes the court should take public opinion into uh, factor, should take political ramifications into uh, into their decision-making process. So we'll see. We shall see. I believe we're going to do it. We'll talk more when we come back. All the weather outside is frightful, but the fire is so as we finish so up today, bright. hopefully, as I say every Since week, today's conversation was fruitful. Hopefully you learned something about what is happening. Hopefully you, you got a sense of, of the arguments. I, I tried my best to read you a piece from someone that, that is pro-abortion. Uh, and then I've read you some pieces from folks that are pro-life and want to see uh, uh, Roe v. Wade overturned. Also, we talked about how it's not over if Roe v. Wade's overturned. It's just the beginning uh, because it goes back to the states, yes, but as a pro-lifer, I, I don't just say, oh, let it go back to the states, and I don't care if New York allows for abortion up until birth. I mean, we we got to understand we want more than that. And I thought it was interesting that last piece that I that I highlighted talked about how, you know, and if if they overturn Roe and it goes back to the states, and in 2024 uh, the Republicans have the House and the Senate and end up getting the Oval Office, that they might pass <clears throat> a uh, a national ban on abortions. Now, uh, I believe that when I see it, but but if they they're, they're acting as if that's a that's a bad thing when. Democrats have been talking about passing a federal abortion law, allowing for abortion, uh, making that a federal mandate. They've been talking about that for a while. So they've also talked about stacking the courts. They've also done all these things. And so instead they're going, the, the, the author of that piece is saying, you know, just know the, the conservatives are going to want to do this and how dare they want to do that when liberals want to go the other direction. Now, I don't think either will happen. I don't, I don't think conservatives will have the guts. I could be wrong, but I don't think they'll have the guts to pass a national ban. I don't know if they can even get the votes. The hard part of that's going to be you'll have some people that claim to be pro-life and campaign on that that will be terrified to actually vote on it. So so I don't know what will happen there. Uh, because we, we have some conservatives that claim to be pro-life, but they're squishy when it comes to that. So will they pass a, a, a federal ban I, I doubt it. Not not soon, anyway. I, I do think that day will come. As science continues to progress, as as we progress as a society when it comes to the the ability to protect the vulnerable in the womb, as viability continues to inch, uh, uh, go, go, you know, instead of 24 weeks, as it continues to get to 20 weeks and 15 weeks and, and who knows, uh, we're going to have to make some adjustments. And, and as I've had these conversations with folks and I've seen people post and, and argue and, and I haven't gotten involved in a lot of that on, online just because it's not healthy or productive. I've seen arguments as if these women are being forced to have babies. As if the, the government is impregnating women or the Supreme Court is impregnating women and then forcing them to have children. That, that's not how this works. And then they'll say, well, rape, incest, life of the mother. That's less than 1% of all abortions. 
But you never hear that number. What they do is anecdotally say, well, this woman was raped and, and you're going to make her have her baby. Or this, this woman was abused and, and through incest and you're going to make her have her baby. Or this woman's life was at stake and you're going to make her have her baby. They do that anecdotally because there's very few cases of that. But the reality is there are women and men walking around among us today that were conceived in rape. They were conceived in incest. There are women and men walking among us today that their mom was told, you need to have an abortion. And the mom chose not to, and baby is just fine. There are women and men walking among us today that have Down syndrome. And there are people in our society and around the world that would see and wish for those people not to live. That we would abort every baby that is diagnosed with Down syndrome in the womb, even though... Some of those diagnoses are wrong. So both sides can anecdotally make arguments all day long. You know, pro-lifers will say Tim Tebow's mom was told to abort, and she didn't. I know friends personally that were told to abort because of a deformity or because of an issue, and they didn't have an abortion, and now their child is graduated college and very successful and doing just fine. So, so we can anecdotally argue this all day long. That's not helpful. The reality is, is it a life or not? We know that it is. And in this country, the greatest country on the planet, we have a right to life. And so if we believe it's a life, it's a life of its own, with its own DNA, with its own blood type, with its own organs. And, and even though the, the judge, uh, Sotomayor, doesn't want to, recognize that fetal pain means life. She actually said fetal pain does not equal life. Even though doctors and science today tells us that before we do a surgery on a baby in the womb, we have to give it anesthesia. Why? Because it feels pain. And it's a human. And it deserves a right to life. So we'll see what happens. We're going to talk about it. You know that. Over the next few weeks, months. And we'll see. We're going to be with you this whole time. We're going to bring you the news when it comes to abortion and life. And we're going to analyze it here and talk about it honestly and transparently. Uh, Why? Because life has value. We'll talk to you next week.